Welcome to the Fan Experience, a Phoenix Rising supporters podcast. Stick around for interviews, analysis, fan stories, and our love affair with Phoenix Rising. And now to kick things off is your host, Niall McCarthy. Phoenix Rising family, welcome to episode 51 of the Fan Experience. We have a great show lined up for you today. We've had two fantastic home wins since our last show, a very tough midweek game in round two of the Open Cup where we beat Valley United FC 1-0 and an exciting game against the LA Galaxy 2 Los Dos on Saturday, April 9th where we won 3-1. By far the biggest news in the league this week is that our former captain, Solomon Asante, signed with Indy 11. Congratulations, Indy, you just made the playoffs. Our current captain, Darnell King, made news himself this week when he picked up honours by making it to the USL Team of the Week for his performance in Rising's away win over San Antonio FC on April 2nd. Congratulations, Darnell, we're so proud of you. Darnell was on the show with us in episode 46. Check it out. Someone else got honours for their performance in that match, the San Antonio goalkeeper Jordan Farr. He picked up save of the week after stopping a banger from Phoenix Rising's midfielder Aidan Quinn. If he had not stepped in and saved that, then we'd certainly have seen Aidan Quinn earn goal of the week. Anyway, well done Aidan Quinn, well done Jordan Farr. That midweek game against Valley United was a grind, a scoreless 90-minute grind that forced 30 minutes of overtime. We beat them 5-0 in the preseason, so we're expecting more of the same, but obviously Valley United learned from that game. They made adjustments and came back with a very different look. Boys to men, you could say. Maybe Valley United had dramatic changes in the lineup. I don't know, but what I do know is that they earned our respect and we're witnessing a rivalry here in Phoenix that will hopefully last for many years. Jake Anderson, who goes by at JWA1994 on Twitter, is with us to round up that other game, the win over Los Dos on April 9th. You know Jake Anderson from AZ Sports 98.7 FM. You can read his articles about Phoenix Rising on ArizonaSports.com and you won't regret following him on Twitter. He's joined by Kelly McCarthy for that game roundup. Following that, we've got an interview with Josh Eastern. Josh is the lead play-by-play broadcaster for Phoenix Rising FC. He's the voice that you hear calling most of the Phoenix Rising games on ESPN Plus and on Bally Sports AZ. After the interview with Josh, John Morrissey, who you know from both the USL show and his incredible analysis on Twitter as at USL Tactics, he brings us the news and results from around the league that matter to Phoenix Rising fans. As part of his reporting, he's got an interesting blurb about why our rivals, Tampa Bay Rowdies, lost to their local rivals in Florida. So stick around for that and for a preview of our next game. But first up, it's that game roundup with Jake Anderson and Kelly McCarthy. Here we go, or as Jake's Italian cousins might say, andiamo. This is Rick Schantz, the head coach of Phoenix Rising, and you're listening to The Fan Experience. Phoenix Rising family on Saturday 9th of April, Phoenix Rising hosted LA Galaxy 2 Los Dos and beat them 3-1. 
I have two fantastic guests joining me today to talk about the game. Jake Anderson from Arizona Sports 98.7 FM. He's returning for his second appearance on the show. Also joining us as a regular contributor is Kelly McCarthy. Welcome, Jake and Kelly, to this, the 51st episode of the Fan Experience, a Phoenix Rising FC supporters podcast. Delighted to have you guys on. Jake, I'll start with you. Is it fair to say that this was a game that we expected to win? First off, congrats on episode 51. One. That is, uh, that's very impressive. But to answer your question, um, the history of this matchup, and, and I think people who have been at least following the whole, I call it tie gate with me, if you've been following that this whole time, the origin of that comes from this, this matchup. So to answer your question, yes, Phoenix Rising is expected to win this game. Going into the last year's game that was in October, Phoenix had won 13 times in a row. That doesn't include draws. That's not unbeaten. We're talking about 13 wins in a row between the two, which is the entirety of me covering this team since 2018. Like I'd only seen one result. So when we went into LA, I was looking at the stats and there's all those goal stats about how at least one team has scored three goals at the time. It was uh, nine straight times we're up to 11 after this weekend, but going into that, it was like, Oh, like Phoenix has won 13 in a row. There's all these goals. And I said to Owen Evans of PHNX now, I told him, I don't think I should wear a tie this game because this team just like they're going to beat them. I've only seen I've only seen it one way. And of course, he goes, you know, it's going to happen if they lose. And sure enough, Tate Smith gets one of his, you know, two reds and, and three halves or whatever it was. And they end up losing the game three nothing. And it was from there on out. It was uh, the tie gate scandal, I guess. Uh, but Later that trip, three days later, we had uh, OC, the first away victory in OC in the regular season. Um, the only other time they'd won there, obviously, was the Western Conference Final. But um, all that to say that, yes, it's a game that Phoenix is expected to win. But um, I thought your listeners, the ones that would know, would appreciate the origin of where the tie story comes from. And it's this rivalry. That's so great. Kelly and I were at that game. It was it was a closed to um spectators but we got in anyway we hustled our way in there and uh i'd love to say we had a fantastic night but wow when when we we ended up losing by three and we were expecting to win by 10 goals or something it was a hard one so kelly over to you what were your thoughts coming into this match um a little bit mixed i mean of course, given our usual record in aggregate, if you will, against Los Dos, I was expecting us to win, but there was a little bit of confusion about who Phoenix Rising is kind of moving into this match. I mean, we had two straight difficult losses so far this season, followed by a great win on the road against San Antonio, but then a lackluster performance, in my opinion, midweek in that open cup match. And of course, add on to that, since it's a, there was a midweek game, just some exhaustion that could set in for the team. And on the flip side of that, you know, Los Dos was coming into this match, um, I think two unbeaten. They'd scored a goal in every game so far. So they have a little bit of momentum on their side. So for me, I was definitely expecting us to win, but I wasn't sure kind of which Phoenix Rising team was going to show up. And I think it's still early enough in the season where we're trying to figure out, like, who are we and who are we consistently? Um, so... And of course, as you both mentioned, you know, that last match against Los Dos was scary and I didn't want to see a repeat of that. But overall, feeling pretty excited and just, you know, happy for such a large crowd at the stadium. It was an exciting game to be at. Yeah, absolutely. OK, let's let's talk about 
who was on the field. Let's look at the lineup. Ben Lunt was in goal. Our captain and right fullback, Darnell King. Left fullback, Ryan Flood. Center backs, Joey Farrell and Kevon Lambert. In the midfield, we had Aidan Quinn, Arturo Rodriguez, Luis Sejas. And up front, we had Marcus Epps, Claudio Repetto, and Greg Hurst. So, Jake, do you have any inside information on the makeup of this team? I think it's a pretty strong lineup. Were there any surprises here? I wouldn't say there were any surprises. It was more just an indication of how hurt is Babu and Jai, how hurt is Santi Moore, which we later found out uh, through the broadcast and Josh Eastern that it's a minimum of two to three weeks for Santi Moore due to that ankle injury sustained against West Valley United on Wednesday, which did look bad. I was watching the first half from that end, so it kind of happened right in front of me, and it sounded bad. It looked bad as you saw him hobble off the field. So that part wasn't um, as unexpected. Um, something I've just noticed is Kevin Lambert's played center back three matches in a row now, and not that I'm saying Joe Farrell needs to come out, but something that I've been thinking about is what would happen if you had Kevin Lambert and James Moose as a center back duo in terms of what that would provide you in building out of the back. Obviously, Phoenix Rising isn't a classic bar, so they're not Manchester City. They're not going to hold the ball for 70% of the game. But when you do need somebody to help build out of the back, I think nobody is better than those two. And especially with Aiden Quinn right in front of them, that triangle can really help disperse the ball um, to wide areas. And then in terms of we had Marcus Epps, again, he's not necessarily having the try to phrase this the way I want to phrase it. He's not having like the season that we thought he would right away, but we're seeing the glimpses of what he can do. And it's coming at the very end of matches. And whether that's stamina, whether that's game flow, whether that's just you can't defend him one-on-one -on -one so many times before he finally does bag that goal. Um, but I think we're seeing improvement from him. But somebody who's surprising the hell out of me, not because of what he's doing, but because of where he's doing it, is Greg Hurst. I didn't expect to see him be able to play on the left wing and just kind of seamlessly move into that slot. I thought he was going to be more of a central um, get in behind kind of striker. And I think he's shown that he's able to play with Claudio Repetto, who I think has been a great target number nine. So the lineup, it seems to be figuring itself out. Granted, there hasn't been um, a really big test. They've had San Antonio away and San Diego at home. Um, so I think this next week, and I should say the next 10 days against New Mexico twice is going to be a big test as to whether this team right now, the way it's constructed with the injuries can hold or whether they do really need to get Santi and Babu back. Kelly, any thoughts on that lineup? A uh, few thoughts. And I really like what Jake just offered. Those were, that was really interesting take. Um, I think we've been looking very strong defensively, especially when compared to the first couple of matches. And, you know, I think Jake's right. It would be really cool to see Lambert and Musa center back pairing. And I think that was the intention when we first started Kevin Lambert back there against San Antonio. And then Musa last minute couldn't make the game. I guess his injury is re recurring or flaring or something. So I think that would be something to look forward to that said, and we'll get into this a little bit later. Farrell did have a good game by my estimation as well. Um, and of course, something that is not brand new, but that we have not yet seen consistently because of this movement with Lambert back is Seha starting. And I will definitely get there in the course of this discussion. He has a huge game and I love him there. I don't love him there just because he did well. I love him there because he's consistently doing well and he's playmaking in a way that we really need and that we hadn't been seeing. Um, so 
I guess those are my main thoughts. I thought Ryan Flood did great. We'll get into that a little bit. And then just to comment on what Jake was saying, um, interesting take on Greg Hurst. I feel like he is a classic sort of number nine. I think that is where he feels most comfortable when I feel like he is hot and like just really making plays is when he is more in that number nine position. That said, I think Repetto has sort of beat him out of it and they're slotting him in on the left. And I totally agree. He is absolutely finding his way, especially if you consider this is not his natural position. He was down in league one, what's the name? Union Omaha. He had 28 appearances with them, 27 of them. He's in that number nine. So, you know, Best we can tell, this is new for him and he's killing it. You know, he's doing a great job. And that's what you have to do, especially if you're making this jump up to the championship league. Like you have to say, yes, I will play wherever you put me. And then you have to do your best and rise up and he's killing it. So uh, great point by Jake. Great. Okay, guys, let's get into the highlights of the game. Phoenix set the tone with four shots on goal in the first 10 minutes. Most notably, we saw Marcus Epps get close to goal with Darnell King unmarked on his right. Epps decided to go it alone, but he lost a tackle. King raced in, crossed the ball into the box to the head of Claudio Repetto. Repetto got a strong header on the ball, but the lowest dose goalie was alert and saved it. Intensity stayed high. The play was back and forth, making for an entertaining game with attempts on both goals. But Phoenix looked dominant, looking more threatening when they had possession. Right on the stroke of the 30th minute, we see nice combination play between Flood, Quinn, and Hurst on the left side of the park, just inside the opponent's half. Aiden Quinn had to fight to get the ball to the center of the pitch to Luis Sejas, who ran with the ball, and to the amusement of everybody there, he decided to have a crack at goal. The ball went straight to the goalie, who was standing firm, got his fingers to the ball, but there was too much momentum for his fingers to stop the ball. It went up over his head, making it 1-0 to Phoenix. Thank you, Luis Sejas. Jake, what a goal. Yeah, it was an absolute just smashing hit. And at first you thought just the keeper made a, a mistake. And it wasn't until you get to see a few more angles that you realize, oh, the bat ball is knuckling. And if you've never seen what a knuckleball looks like coming at you, it, there's a reason why the goalkeeper looks stupid, for lack of a better term. It's because you literally just, it's going here, it's going there, it's going there. All of a sudden it's through your hands in the net. And it's just one of those where you have to have shots on goal. I, I think that's something that I wrote in, uh, maybe it was two recaps ago. I'm not sure which one it was, but it was, it looked like they were scared to take shots. And obviously with Luis on Saturday night, we saw that he wasn't afraid to rip it with his left. And this is what happens. If you get shots on goal, you get bodies in front of goal. You could have a cracker. You could have a mistake. You could have some fortune, just have a crack. And, and this is what happens. Goals happen. Yeah, when I said for to the amusement of all, we really didn't expect it. You know, when there's a build-up to, to goal, you know, it's a, a gasp or people start shouting. It was nothing like that. It just seemed like it just came out of nowhere. Kelly, what did you think? Yes, agree with what you're both saying. I mean, my first thought was that it was a keeper error until I got to watch those highlights again. And I was like, oh, <laughs> um, that was a beautiful shot. And I just feel like, you know, Jake has already said this, so I'm just going to be probably repeating him this entire session here, but you have to take shots. You have to take shots. We have to take shots so many more and they have to come from the midfield. I mean, as much as we have some new personnel up front trying new things, as much as we're seeing some creative overlapping runs, you know, we're not getting it done with our short passes in the final third. Like, 
we're, we're not getting as many rebounds. We're not poaching as much as we should. And so shots have to come from all different areas of the park. And we have the talent with a Sejas, with a Quinn and a Rodriguez. Like you can't name three players who are better at taking shots from distance on target. Um, so this is how it's going to happen. I mean, so far for Phoenix Rising, this is what we're seeing. It's kind of those, those hard driven shots from distance as well as those set pieces. Um, and that will come to fruition later as well. So yeah, this is beautiful and it's what we need to do. And then once people catch on and opponents start covering the midfield more, we're gonna open up that forward line. So this is really exciting. And in a post-game interview, which I read, but did not hear. Seha said something about his whole family being in town. And you could tell, man was energized. I mean, he was just excited and he is a playmaker. He is a leader and he really showed it, I think with this play and throughout the game. Great, Kelly, I'll stick with you for this one. In the next 10 minutes, our boys had several more attempts on goal. LA had two corners that could have been dangerous, but both were taken care of. Then in the 42nd minute, Phoenix win a corner. Aiden Quinn takes it. He sends the ball beautifully into the mixer. The LA goalie jumps and tips it away out of danger, you might think. No, absolutely not. He sends it into the path of the most dangerous man on the field at this moment, Luis Sejas. Sejas connects with the ball right at the edge of the 18-yard box. He puts his laces through the ball, which whips past almost every player on the pitch and rockets into the bottom right corner. What technique, Kelly. I'm thinking that's the goal of the week. <laughs> it certainly was from our perspective, and we had such a good angle on this. And I just don't know how he found a pathway through all those players. I mean, it was through traffic, but yeah, like you mentioned, it's the skill in this shot. That's just really worth talking about. Although of course, huge nod to uh, Aiden Quinn with his service and just, he's been so consistent and amazing and his buildup play was really great on the evening as well. But yeah, I mean, Everyone who watches even a little bit of soccer has seen these shots go skying over the net. I mean, this is really takes talent because it's coming at you with so much velocity and force to redirect that and keep it low. I mean, if you watch that highlight, and I don't have the ability to watch it like in slow-mo, but I wanted to, he not only keeps his head down, his body over the ball, but he also keeps his knee sort of down over the ball. And again, we saw this last week, he put so much force behind this, both feet leave the ground, but he still holds that body position. I mean, this to me is muscle memory. This is a player that is practicing a tough shot and just like pounding it all the time. And he just executes perfectly. It's gorgeous. And again, so much traffic. Like, did he get lucky to slip it through? I don't know, but it was brilliant. Yeah, Jake, he had a fantastic game with those two goals. He's having a really good season. I didn't see this last season. Did, did you see sparks of this last season? I don't think anyone saw him coming out being the team's leading goal scorer, uh, you know, through week five. Um, but I mean, when you have the resume that he does, I mean, there's a reason why he plays in World Cup qualifiers and, in, in, you know, South America for Venezuela. And he played in Copa Libertadores and, and, he, and he played in some massively high profile matches. And because he has the talent, he has the skill. You can see it when he's on the ball. I always thought he was, we saw glimpses of it last year when he came in in the midfield. It's just, if you, if you need someone to help you get things going, move the ball side to side, get the ball to your playmakers, help be that connector, that bridge, whatever you want to call it. He has that. And that's what he's brilliant at. And now we're seeing just because of how game flow is going to happen with most teams, Phoenix face the, I mean, the book's out, right. You park the, if you, if you 
maybe not that how to beat Phoenix Rising, but how to not lose to Phoenix Rising book of just sit back, make them break you down in, in small, tight spaces. And that's where I came with the whole, you need to start shooting from distance type thing. So if, if this is something that he can do, and like Kelly said, if you have Arturo Rodriguez, you can do that. You have an Aiden Quinn, you can do that. We've Aiden Quinn should have had a couple free kicks go in already by this point in the season. So with all of that, I think Luis is just adding to the midfield depth and, and I think it's going to create a problem for Rick Shantz. And I, and I guess for a manager's perspective, it's a good problem to have, but it's getting hard to pick which uh, three midfielders you want now. For sure, for sure. So Kelly, talk to us about that first half. Oh, sure. And I just wanted to comment that really quickly, what Jake was saying. I think one of the other things that's that's great about Luis is that he is not huge. Like he's a smaller guy. He's really nimble on the ball, but he also doesn't get like thrown around. Like he manages to hold his own. And I've seen kind of some of his movements off the ball. He sort of shoves people around a little bit, not in a negative way, like not too much, but he lets people know, like, don't mess with me. And you have to do that when you're of his size and stature. And that that's kind of how I think he's able to be so powerful as people aren't just trying to tug him down all the time he makes his presence known but um you're asking about the first half <laughs> the first half was great I mean personally I was feeling really confident as we headed into that tunnel once again I I wasn't suited up as the team headed into the tunnel I thought the back line was really solid I thought we were controlling those counterattacks a little bit better than we have um, you know, speaking, Jake's talking about the playbook on how to beat Phoenix Rising or come out strong against Phoenix Rising, and those counterattacks have been a big problem. And I thought we did a good job controlling those a little bit more through the midfield and, and in our defense. Um, I think statistically, after the first half, we had six clearances compared to Los Dos's 17. So you can see we're able to kind of control that ball in the back line. We're not panicked. Um, and we had 84% passing accuracy, finishing up that first 45, maybe plus three minutes, 27, 21 crosses. So I think there was kind of a coordinated and a relentless attack being built by Phoenix Rising. I mean, we weren't as dangerous in the final third as I would have liked, but we were certainly getting the job done. So you're definitely sticking around for the second half and you're not tempted to think that that's it and head over across the other side of the parking lot to where the trucks were racing. I didn't even stand in line for French fries. I was, I was getting back to my seat. <laughs> Jake, sum up that first half for us. I think the first half was kind of the half that I don't, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm just assuming that because of the way they love to come out way Rick loves to play and just hit you hard in the first 20 minutes, knowing that the second half was going to be a struggle due to the fact that they had played 120 minutes just three days prior. So I think it was paramount that they got that early goal. I say early, it was the 30th minute, but it's still the first half. Um, and, and to be able to, to get the second one quickly after it kind of just changes everything going into halftime. It allows you to have more of a, of a defensive shape that you're not going to be exposed to keep going. So I think just being able to execute the game plan in the first half allowed Phoenix Rising, especially coming off of a 120-minute match, to be able to play and not have to stretch themselves out to where maybe if it was a 1-1, if it was only one nothing, they might have still been pushing forward a little harder, and maybe some of those counters end up going in earlier in the match instead of only the one. Let's move on to the second half then. LA came out hungry. They had a lot more chances earlier on in the second half from the center of the pitch, 
Losto sent a long ball forward to their striker, Preston Judd, who did well to beat Darnell King. He hustled through two rising defenders and got a pass to open space on the left side where LA's captain, Michael Salazar, rushed in, tapped it to the center to his teammate, Remy Cabral, who didn't hesitate to take a close range shot, putting Los Dos on the board. Kelly, were you, were you thinking there was anything we could have done about that? Yeah, I think there were things we probably could have done about that. But that said, it was a nice goal. And I think, you know, it does show a little bit of the defensive struggles that we have. You know, when that ball comes in, we have sort of plenty of players there. Kevin Lambert controls that ball. I mean, he's in a position to, he gets it down. And, you know, to Los Dos's credit, Preston Judd's amazing. And this is what he does. He's a disruptor in the box there. So he kind of did what he does, but we swarm him. You know, I think Flood was back there. Farrell was back there. Lambert obviously was there. Um, that's maybe too many players he manages to get through. And then at that point, you know, some numbers have arrived on his team. So the one thing I would say we could do better is just a little bit more man marking, maybe some help from our, with, from our midfield defensively. You know, we often have our outside backs having to cover a wide area and multiple men. And I think that's what happens here. You know, King comes over to kind of help and he just leaves a player on the outside wide open. He has to, he has to make some decisions. So, um, you know, I think our midfield maybe could have dropped back and picked up some men possibly on that counterattack. Um, but it was nice play. You know, it was just a good job for a team that really was, you know, came out strong in that second half and Phoenix Rising is starting to tire a little bit. So mixed answer. <laughs> you can always do more. Jake, feel free to, to jump in here. But at this point, the score is two goals to one. So um, it's not in the bag by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, and, and I think Rick, you know, classified Kelly's exact point as just they didn't concentrate for that one moment in time. Um, and you see it like this. It's unfortunate that the ball bounced the way it did um, off the long ball that Judd's able to bring down. And like Kelly said, he's really good at soccer. So this is what he can do. Now, the fact that he can beat a guy and, and split two and get it off to a guy coming on the far side, that to me is where I think Rick's talking about the concentration side of don't ball watch. There are going to be people trying to help. They're losing. Their best attacking player has the ball. And then when he gets the cross off for the, the square ball off, it at that point seems like, oh, well, that's going to be a one-time finish. And I can't remember who that was, but he has the, the awareness to not take this shot, make one more pass for an easy tap in. And Kelly, that's exactly what I think she was talking about. So where you have so many numbers back at that point, how is someone able to play or able to play a square ball in your own box? So it's just not giving up until the play is over. And, and I think it's just a lapse of concentration, maybe some ball watching. You thought, Hey, Judd's going to take it himself or that guy's going to take it himself. And it, it, it's professional sports. It's a game of inches and a game of seconds. And if you're not giving it, you're all the entire time. Yeah. And it was down to the last seconds of regular time when we saw some more action. It was back and forth play, but Arturo Rodriguez had possession on the right wing in his own half. He breaks free of his opponents. He passes the ball forward to Aiden Quinn, who brings it through the center circle and passes off to his left to Joey Calistri, who came on earlier in that second half. Joey dribbles to the right of his man. He takes a shot low and hard from the center of the pitch, 18 yards out. The goalie dives to his left. He blocks it, but Marcus Epps is there with the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle, a simple tap in from a few feet out. 
Jake, how are you feeling at this point? What did you think of that goal? I thought it was a repeat of when he came out against San Antonio, you know, put the game to bed, restore the two goal advantage. Um, but it, it's, it's just the going back and forth. And it's the difference of, like we said earlier, when you take a shot, a keeper can spill it. And this is what happens. You, you give yourself an opportunity rather than trying to walk it into the net. It seems like they want to sometimes. So it was just, it was good to see Joey take a shot. It wasn't a perfect shot, but a keeper can't handle it. Marcus is there. And that's exactly what you're trying to see from your front three. So it, it was nice to see that it wasn't going to be a draw. It was going to be three points. I mean, they were the better team on the night. And it was one of those where the, the scoreline now dictates that that is uh, what happened and extends the streak for this uh, goal fest between the two. And good to see Marcus uh, getting into uh, getting on the sheet now. He's got two in his last two league matches. So hopefully he can continue that streak, especially with Santi on the, uh, on the bench. Absolutely, Jake. Okay, Kelly, over to you. You want to talk about that goal? You want to talk about that second half? Two points that might be of interest. First is I love Joey Kalistri. I think everyone loves Joey Kalistri for a million reasons, including, you know, his clutch plays, his ability to defend. But one of the things I like about him is that he really does the direct to goal thing. You know, like he'll obviously make passes. He's definitely a team player, but he also like simplifies. And I think that's part of his magic. You know, it's like if their defensive line is pulled up really high and that's forcing people to be offsides on your team like you just run with the ball like you just need to bring the ball to pull people on sides and I'm sorry that's a rudimentary description but that's kind of what he does here is he just takes the ball to the goal like sometimes that's the easiest route Aiden Quinn makes a great run off the ball to help confuse things a little bit and Kalistri takes the shot and I mean you know Jake and I have said this a couple times now but that's sort of what it takes um, just get those numbers up. It's like sales, you know, the more calls you make, the more you're going to get. But I did want to mention for Epps, you know, Epps being in this starting 11 was a difference from the lineup that we saw against San Antonio, where we actually saw Kalistri in the starting 11. So I think there's a little bit of battle that can be had there in terms of, you know, when we pick the lineup that we're going to stick with. And of course, part of that depends on injuries. Um, where does Kalistri factor in and does he? So um, we've looked at the highlights. Let's take a look at the formation and particularly Jake defense. Not a lot of compliments, let's say, our defense, the first few games of the season. So have they figured things out? I'm interested to see what's going to happen at center back um, just because you have two little storylines going on. One, the obvious one is the injuries. Um, we don't know how long James is going to be out. So that obviously affects if Kevin Lambert's going to be in there. Manuel Madrid obviously looks to be fine health-wise, but he's not um, winning the competition in training, obviously. Otherwise, he would be starting. Niall's going to be out for a while. So my big question now is, and I've, and I've spoken to Joe Farrell about this, every year since I've been covering this team, which is 2018, Joe Farrell has gone from bench uh, center back, and by the time the playoffs start, he's starting. It's happened every single year. Now, this is the first year where Joe Farrell is the starting center back. And so I was saying, well, what's going to happen throughout the course of the year? And now we've seen this predicament to where Kev's now playing center back and it's working. So if James comes back, and I, and I said earlier, not that Joe's not doing the job, but like, where do you put all these pieces now? Um, I don't anticipate three in the back ever with, with uh, Rick Schantz. It just does not 
not that you can't do it, but it doesn't necessarily suit the way they want to play. They could find a way to do it if they really wanted to. But defensively, I, I love Darnell. I think he's great for what he does, um, both on the pitch uh, as a soccer player and as a leader. And for uh, Ryan Flood, defensively, I think he's a better offensive player than he is a defensive player. I think Babu's a little bit in that mold as well to where when he goes up, you're going to have to keep um, either your six back to be the third defender with the two center backs, or maybe your right back and Darnell doesn't go up as high so he can track back on counters. Um, the only issues I could see for Phoenix rising as of right now would be on the left side. And that's just because your two left backs are predominantly better at going forward than they are defending in my opinion. Okay. Kelly, over to you, the back line. Uh, I'm interested in everything Jake just said. It gives me kind of a lot to think about. I will say, I totally agree with him in that center back is now a bit of a conundrum and a good one because we've got good options um, with, with those three primary options, one being James Musa. I will say that the combination we had last night, I did feel like there were some nice pairings with the outside back. Like I thought Lambert and King worked really well and communicated well together. And I thought Flood and Farrell did as well. Um, we don't normally see Farrell in the left center back spot. So, you know, it was just interesting to note. I think we'll continue to see some rotation until we find what fits. But in the meantime, they did a great job and I felt very comfortable with them. Like with Madrid in there every once in a while, I'm like, oh, Kelly hasn't been breathing for the last five minutes. Like it just feel like a little more nervous so you know I felt that they were pretty solid and again they handled those counterattacks. they both they all look very fit I just feel like they're working on their speed their positioning their communication so we've cleaned some things up and of course when talking about the defense like you can't forget Lunt who had a big night with some big saves um he's been really in top form so that's been exciting to watch too I just feel like he's having a great season so far yeah, absolutely. So yeah, two things to say on that. One is that I feel like our defense are com communicating better than they were. I think it's tangible that regardless of who the, the, the bodies are, that they're just looking better as a team and they're knowing what to expect from each other. And second point is Joey Farrell. Yeah, great point that we didn't see him as a starter in previous seasons. But one thing, Jake, is that he's somebody that has just gotten better and better and better with every season. I'm delighted to see him out there. Okay, let's move on to the midfielders. Jake, what are your thoughts on the midfield last night? So obviously the big the big talking point would be Luis, who, you know, could do no wrong. Um, so I'll focus on the other two in, in Arturo and, and Aiden. Um, I mean, this might be a hot take, but I they've disappointed me a tad um this season just because i think my expectations were so high um that it, it was going to take a lot to in quote unquote impress me um or just get me to the point where i'm like that's what i expected uh and i i just think that's early uh in the season right we're still getting feet underneath you but arturo to me i thought was going to be the missing puzzle piece of why can't they score or play those uh, one, two quick tiki taka passers or, you know, he dribbles through a hundred guys in the box. And I was actually talking to some people about this. I believe it was Owen Evans. He's getting to the point and talking about Arturo where he beats two or three guys and then there's a ball he can play, but he's not playing that ball. He's continuing to dribble himself and taking it alone. And I'm never going to know the psyche of a footballer that's just beat three guys. So I can't tell you what you're thinking in those moments, but from you know, uh, bird's eye view, it, there are times, and there was a 
It's one that stands out to me um, against West Valley, just because I was there. He could have easily played it to Greg Hurst, and Greg Hurst has a shot. But he doesn't, and he continues to go, and he doesn't even get a, get a shot off at all because he's dispossessed because you try to beat a fourth man, you're eventually going to lose one of these battles, right? Um, and then for, for Aiden Quinn, it seems to me like at the beginning of the year, and specifically more last year, he was a, a higher in the pitch player. And I don't know if it's because Kev had to drop back and now Aiden's dropping back more, but I think that actually might suit the team better. Um, having maybe Arturo and Luis being the guys that are going to take care of more of the final third stuff. And Aiden can be more of a defense to midfield or defense to uh, wingers kind of guy, if that makes any sense, playing more of a six role. It does. It does. Over to you, Kelly. All right. You're killing me officially, Jake. Um, everything you're saying, I'm like, ah, I have no problem with that. I really agree with you, actually. And Niall and I have had little debates about the performances of the midfield, too, and Aiden Quinn's role. And um, so I'm glad to hear you say that because I've kind of like haven't been able to put words to some of the things that I've been feeling. And I mean, Sejas was amazing. And I think you know, he had a great game defensively as well, came up with some huge blocks when we needed them. He was all over. And I think I'm enjoying Quinn playing more defensively. I think he has improved his defense, like able to stand his ground, turn his body, poke his foot in, like just some classic defending things that I wasn't seeing from him last season. Um, and I think he sort of leads more when he's further back in the pitch, you know, he's able to direct. So I'm enjoying seeing him there. I think that has improved what I see, especially when you can get some big plays coming out of the back, you know, in the absence of having a Musa back there, I think we're seeing Quinn sort of do that, like back of the pitch playmaking. So that's been really good. But in terms of Rodriguez, like I can't put words to it either. And I like what you've described. It almost feels like he gets frustrated. Like he's kind of like, fine, I'll do it myself, but he doesn't need to because he has good support around him. So it might just be a chemistry thing because on one hand, I often say, I often take notes at games like, oh, Rodriguez plays well with X. You know, he's really good at looking for plays, but when he doesn't get it back, he kind of gets frustrated. So I think there's something that hasn't quite clicked in terms of his connection with the other players and how he's going to slot in. Like he's making big plays, but then he's sort of losing them as well, as Jake mentioned. So um, you can't complain though. I think there was good movement of the ball through the midfield and we really saw like returns on that in the game well I was very focused on Quinn last night and I have to stick up for him there was a kid behind us and after 10 minutes he's like that guy number 14 the guy in the middle there he needs to come off every time he's losing it look there it is again he's losing it now, the thing is that he's involved in almost every play and is involved in every single one of those goals last night. He's the one that got the ball to Luis Seas for the first goal. He's the one that sent the ball in, took the corner for the second goal. And he was a distractor uh, on that third goal. So, you know, I'm, I'm with Quinn, guys. I'm sorry. It's 2-1 maybe, but I'm with Quinn. No, we're with Quinn too. We're totally with Quinn. It's just a matter of when you have someone that skilled, where do they belong? What role do they play? And are they like, I remember it saying about Sejas, like, you know, what is the dynamic that makes him rise to the top? And it's just that question. You know when a player is playing at their fullest potential. And we haven't necessarily seen that consistently from Quinn. He was a beast last night. I mean, he really was all over. And he'd been a beast midweek too, you know, having to do a lot of directing. And like, 
Ooh, that kid behind us. He was, if you could have heard him, like he was such, I'm sorry to use this term, like a nerd. He was one of those people probably like me that has like just enough knowledge to think they know everything. But yeah, he was hilarious about Quinn. I wanted to turn around and give him a little slap. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she didn't, but I did. (laughs) Would never. All right, let's move it up to the attack. How did our forwards do last night, Jake? Well, obviously, I, I'm loving the new addition of Claudio Repetto. I think he's the classic number nine target man that we'd seen in previous years with Chris Cortez and, and you know, Rufa Tadashov. And I'm not going to compare anyone to Didier Drogba because that's just not fair. Um, but it, he he does the, the little things that I think this team has been been missing from, from that forward ever since Rufa left, you know, and it's it's been almost a year now since Rupat's been gone. So we've kind of readjusted to what we see every day uh, or every match day from Phoenix. The one thing I will say, and it's the thing that's driving me nuts, is yes, the, the original plan A is press, take the ball, have numbers or even numbers, and everything's a one-on-one battle. That is plan A. Now, what happens when you don't have plan A working or you – or you allow an early goal or play dictates to where you don't have those advantages in numbers. And this is where I'm getting frustrated watching this team this year is it almost seems like it's a rule. You can't cross the ball unless you're past the 18. And it's driving me insane because at that point in time, any space that was there is gone because you've passed, you're dribbling with the ball past the 18. It's not like they're, they're bouncing it around and moving guys. You know, when Santi was healthy, he would take it and then cut, go to the end line and then look for a pass back. And yes, that will work at times, but it seems like it's the go-to strategy. And to me, there have been times where it's, why don't you play the ball a little earlier to Hurst in behind? And now we can take one center back as he's coming across, take one center back out of the play and the far man who, let's say if it's coming from the left and it's Epps on the far side, can now fill in and cut across to where that center back, the second center back who hasn't had to chase Hurst, has to then get him passed on and then has to defend Epps, who could have a one-touch finish. It's not an easy goal, but again, their chances and their shots on net to where we've seen it with Arturo, we've seen it with Santi, they do these cutbacks to get to the end line and they cut it back and the crosses aren't even completed. So you're not even getting a shot off. So that goes back to what I've said about trying to walk the ball in. Um, I just think they're trying to reinvent the wheel sometimes and and trying to score two nights of goals when I think we should just try to get back to basics of if you're open, have a shot. Not Not every goal has to be perfect. Good take, Jake. Kelly, over to you. Amen. Totally agree. Like, and play some through balls for God's sake, you know, like send the ball down the field, have some people chase it. Like there are easier ways. And, you know, we had Rick Shentz on the podcast and I just like to say that at least once an episode um, in the off season. And he kind of talked about this idea of like, why do we make it so difficult for ourselves? So I think it's kind of a known thing, you know, like, yes, we're pressing all the time. This is allowing their defense to constantly be back, you know, circling, waiting for us to continue to press and it just makes goal scoring harder. So um, totally agree with Jake. And I think our forward line did, did well despite it, you know, and I think they're still kind of figuring out 
who they are in relationship with each other, especially what we mentioned Hearst is now playing on the outside as a winger, which is kind of a new look for him. Um, we're still seeing Epps figure out his place in the lineup as well. So, I mean, my shortest answer is I think there's still some more work to do. And I totally agree with Jake. Uh, some of that work could be a little bit easier if we went back to basics. Great, okay. Well, guys, that brings us to just about the end. So, Jake, can I ask you for some closing comments? And, of course, we've got an exciting week ahead of us. Very unusual. We're going to be playing two games against New Mexico. Over to you, Jake. Yeah, so obviously the first is going to be the USL Championship match, which will have season-long implications. And then I don't know if they're going to go back to New Mexico or they're just going to extend their stay. But obviously three days later, four days later, excuse me, on Wednesday, they'll – uh, they'll play New Mexico again in the third round of the Open Cup. So, again, covering this team since 2018, this will be the first time they're ever in the third round, um, for me anyway. Um, the last time they were in the Open Cup, they lost in penalties to none other than New Mexico, and Santi made a penalty in that match. Now, unfortunately, Santi's not going to be able to play against his former side, which is going to hurt in terms of advancing. But I'm really interested to see if it's going to be the same exact lineup two games in a row, if we're going to see two totally different lineups. Um, remember, these teams last year played in the preseason and then didn't and only played once. And Phoenix Rising got dismantled in the preseason and then figured things out by the time they came back around. So it's going to be interesting. New Mexico's always been known to score goals and, and Rising's not doing the best keeping clean sheets. So, you know, in terms of both these matches, if you want to win in 90, I think you're going to have to score a couple goals. and. And it's just part of the rivalry. I, I'm really hoping Phoenix can advance in the Open Cup. I just think it would be so cool to see them in a fourth round. You're going to have every MLS team at that point in. Um, the American ones, obviously, not the Canadian ones. Um, and then and it's possible, I think, that um, you could even see them play Tucson. I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, I have to look at all the, the drawings of it. But the Tucson got a, a favorable draw with Anissa side. So... I think that would be a pretty kick-ass draw if they could play Tucson somehow in the fourth round and make a run to the fifth round, which I believe is a round exactly. of 16 at that point. But, yeah, so I'm not sure exactly how the draw would work because I do know that an MLS team that comes in has to play a winner of the previous round, and I don't know at that point if it has to be a non-MLS team or not. I do know for this round, MLS teams could not play each other. Um but hey, an MLS team has won this competition every single year for the last 20 years. So from a Phoenix Rising perspective, just getting to play one would be cool. But hey, we're, we're talking about New Mexico United. This team made the semifinals, was it? A couple of years back in, in 2019. Yeah. So, so, I mean, hey, why not? Why not? It's a, it's a trophy. Um, we, we obviously know Phoenix Rising has got two trophies that they haven't got yet. And USO Championship playoffs is probably a little easier. Um, but again, this is Phoenix rising. Why not? We've, we've seen some cup runs and it, it puts your name out there and it shows what, uh, that you yeah, I'm, I'm ready to see that cup in Phoenix and go and kiss it. Have my photo taken <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Kelly, closing comments. It's not the Blarney stone. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't actually, I don't have any thoughts on the open cup stuff. Looking forward to playing New Mexico for sure. Looking forward to how many home games in a row we have and, you know, sort of doing our part to support the team. New Mexico has, Chris, is it Chris Weehan on their team now? Mm -hmm. And he makes me a little bit nervous. So I'm going to do my part to uh, belittle and badger him from the sidelines. No, I'm just kidding. 
Um, but it'll be exciting for sure. New Mexico is a rivalry and rivalries, you know, you typically rise up to meet that excitement. So definitely thinking they're going to be action packed games. And generally speaking, I just think we're moving in the right direction. You know, I don't want to say we got off to a rocky start, but we had a couple of games there that, that made us nervous, that made us kind of have to think about what we were doing both defensively and offensively. And I think it's starting to click. And not only are we identifying kind of the right players, but just the right mentality and gaining some confidence. So um, very excited to see the chemistry continue to improve on the team and uh, go rising. Can't wait. Hey, guys, just talking about Los Dos and Phoenix. The next time that these two teams play each other, it's just a few weeks away in May the 1st. And that, of course, is going to be over there in L.A. in Carson City. Guys, this has been great. Thank you so much, Jake, for coming on to the fan experience today. Really appreciate having you on. Well, thank you. I got I got two little uh, nuggets, if you want, for the for the Open Cup, I guess, matchups against New Mexico. Um One's a little bit more more somber than the other. I'll start with that one, I guess. Uh, Devin Sandoval is no longer with New Mexico United. Had to retire, obviously, unfortunately, with some heart issues. Um, but he was a phenomenal striker. I, I was reminded of that when Kelly brought up Chris Wien, um, just because it was kind of like those two went hand-in-hand hand together with New Mexico. Um, but the other one is Phoenix Rising's record in cup matches now. They have failed to win in 90 minutes in nine straight now. Um, which means that the last time Phoenix Rising won a cup match in 90 minutes was the 2018 Western Conference final away to OC. Um, I didn't believe it when I heard it, and I literally went through memory, and yeah, every single one after that, it's either penalties, extra time, or a loss. So it's uh, it's going to be interesting, and sure enough, one of those in those streak was that, uh, that loss in penalties to New Mexico. So that they're part of it. Let's see if they can break it again. Wow. It's crazy, Jake. It's crazy. <laughs> Hey, Kelly, thank you for coming on today. I love talking football with you. Appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Listeners, stick around for the next segment, an interview with Josh Eastern, the lead play-by-play broadcaster for Phoenix Rising FC. And if you'd like to join us in the panel for a future game, or if you have comments, questions, or ideas, please send them to us, thefanexperiencefc at gmail.com, or on Twitter, at fanexperiencefc. Thank you for your support. It's Niall Dunn, defender with Phoenix Rising, and you're listening to the Fan Experience. Josh, you started your professional career in 2019 covering mostly soccer. I've seen you cover other sports, but my understanding is that your focus is soccer. So as a broadcaster in the U.S., do you choose one sport and focus your career on that, or do you have to be nimble and available to call games in other sports? I always say the best ability is availability, so any... Anything that's open to me, I will absolutely take. I've done a little bit of hockey, um, just finished up doing the Premier Hockey Federation, which is the uh, Women's League in the United States and the team in, in Toronto. Um, but through college, I've called basketball, baseball, actually mostly baseball. I was a baseball player pretty much through high school. Uh, so I would say that's kind of my first sport, but obviously I dove right into soccer and absolutely love it. I watch international soccer. So I'm honestly open to doing anything. It's just kind of soccer's fallen into my lap and I've absolutely loved it. And you've got CONCACAF on your resume. Tell us about that. So where I work at, at, at Vista World Link, which is where we do all the games, uh, CONCACAF is also a big part of it. So we do all the Gold Cup. Uh, we do Nations League. We do Champions League. We do CONCACAF League. We do some of the youth tournaments as well. Um, those games have been absolutely incredible. I mean, there's nothing beats international soccer. It's so much different than the club game, especially these days. Um, so being able to do some some USA Canada games, 
uh, and, and just some some other cool cool games has, has, has been a great experience. Amazing. In the USL, do you get a number of teams at the start of the year or how does it work? It's kind of interesting. So basically what, what Vista World Link is, I'll kind of take you behind the curtain, is a, a company that, that teams can, can pay to basically produce their games. So about half the league right now is, is with, with Vista World Link. The other half basically does it themselves. Uh, Phoenix is obviously one of those. So that's why I'm, I'm doing those games along with, with mostly Devin Kerr. Um, so it, it, it kind of rotates along. Phoenix is obviously the team that I do the most. Um, so I, I know them well, obviously. Um, but I, I, I do get to see uh, a few other teams uh, throughout the season. But now it's great with the new format this year. I'll be able to see the whole uh, Western Conference and, and most of the teams in the East. So it, it, it kind of works out well. Awesome. I thought this was an interesting question from a fan. How long does it take for you to prepare for a game and what does it involve? Yeah, I, I get this question a lot. So with the early with, with early on in the season, it's a little bit more prep than I would say like later on in the season once we've seen most teams in September um, because now I'm building all my boards. Um, boards is, is, is a spotting board, which is basically how I organize all my stats, the roster, just all the basic information, how old a player is, where he's from, uh, records, and, and just some, some other notes I, I put on my sheet. Um, but probably early on in the season, it's, it's a few hours per team as the season goes along, like with Phoenix. Um, I just really need to update a few things, add a few storylines. We also talk with coaches before every single game, uh, or, or at least we, we try to. So that information is invaluable because it, it really takes us behind the curtain of what's going on with the club. It gives us a little bit of credibility when, when we can say, oh, we talked to Rick Schantz this week. Um, so to get back to the question, it's probably a few hours per team. Um, and then as the season goes on, maybe that comes down a little bit just based on I've, I've already seen the team. Gotcha. Okay, so here's a, a question revolving around the changes that have been experienced because of COVID. So before COVID, somebody in your position, what percentage of games would be called from a press box versus in the studio? That's, that's an interesting question because the way it's set up at, at Vista is all the games are remote even before COVID. Um, now, obviously that has changed a little bit with, with some other sports. I know like a lot of broadcasters, if you watch college football or college basketball over the last few years, even with, with some, some uh, MLS soccer, uh, they'll, they'll call it from their homes or they'll go into a studio. But me, honestly, nothing has changed. I, I live down in Florida. We go into the studio, um, and that's basically how it works, whether it be in 2019 when I started or, or now here in 2022, even kind of through the, the heart of the pandemic in 2020 and early in 2021, we were still going into the studio. So honestly, nothing has really changed in, in, in terms of that. So yeah, I guess that's the best way to answer it. Awesome. Just two more questions. How many people sure. are involved in a broadcast? So there's obviously you and Devin Kerr calling the games, but mm -hmm. other things that we, we don't see, the cameraman, how many cameramen do we have at a game? How many producers and other people involved? Right. So when you look at it kind of on a, a small scale, it's it's a smaller crew than, than you would say works like a, a MLS game that, that is shown on Fox Network. Um, so we have usually a producer, a director, a replay operator, an audio person. So those are like the four technical people in what, what we call our, our PCRs, which is our production control rooms. Um, then on site, there are four cameramen. All USL championship shows that are on ESPN Plus have 
have four cameras. Um, I guess some, some others have a few more if they, just depending on a few things, but, but basically it's, it's usually four. Uh, we usually have an on-site, we, we call them a him or her, a, a red hat, which basically gives us the information usually from the fourth official. So that stoppage time, who's coming in for substitutes. Um, so what is that? That's like nine people there plus two broadcasters, 11. Um, if you want to go even deeper, we have engineers that kind of set everything up at, at Vista. Um, so I'd say on a, on a basic level, it's about 10 to 12 people. If you want to get a little bit deeper, you could say 15 or so, but it's a relatively small crew. Once the game is, is, is underway, it's, it's just a few people that kind of making it all happen. Amazing. So thanks for giving us a look behind the curtain there. Sure. So I've got, I've got kind of a, a request. I would love to see extended highlights just because, you know, I'm either, either at a Phoenix Rising game or I'm watching a Phoenix Rising game on TV, but there are so many other games that I'd like to see more than just kind of the typical three-minute highlight. Do you think mm-hmm. that's ever going to happen? Uh, I don't know. That's, that's probably a question for, for the, for the USL league office. Cause, cause they put all those highlight reels together. Um, so honestly, I, I can't give you a good answer on that. That would be cool though. I yeah. Agree. I'd love that. I'd love it. All right. Thank you so much, Josh. Of course. Awesome. See you soon. This is Teo Mackey from the Arizona Republic and you're listening to the fan experience. Hey, John, welcome back to the show. It's fantastic to have you on. I want to give you a congratulations for your hometown in the 11th signing former Phoenix Rising captain Solomon Asante. Absolutely huge news, the biggest news in USL by far this season. So anyway, um, we've got that news. What other news do you have for us? Start us off with the Open Cup. Uh, Lots of cup sets, (laughs) one of my favorite words that we got during those midweek games. Um, St. Louis is, uh, that's the MLS upcoming team. Their affiliate uh, really took it to Indy 11. They feature a lot of players you would recognize from USL. Think about Josh Yarrow, uh, Juan Cousin. Uh, San Antonio, however, avoided the cup set. Uh, their youngster, Sakshog, who debuted against Phoenix last week, got a brace in their win. El Paso in a preview of an up and down week lost four to one to League One's Central Valley Fuego, who got a really nice chipped goal from distance from Vilyan Biev, who was uh, on the fringes of the Golden Boot race in the championship last year for OKC. Elsewhere in the open, you had Colorado Springs, who, despite the fact that they're really running laps around USL at this point, was upset by the debutants in League One, the Northern Colorado Hailstorm. Uh, elsewhere, Charleston, Oakland, and Las Vegas Lights all lost as well in some upset games uh, against League One teams. Memphis dropped a game to a Nisa side. Uh, not all bad for the USL Championship, though. Tampa dominated, and Sacramento, most impressively of all, really got a 6 nothing win against a Portland Timbers affiliate, and they just ran rampant the entire time. It was one of the better games I've seen a team play this season. But uh, circling around to the games at the weekend, uh, on Saturday, we saw Pittsburgh and Colorado Springs, really maybe my two favorites uh, so far this season, look very dominant, but only get one goal wins that really belied the uh, really great performances they put in. Pittsburgh runs this really interesting like 3-6-1 formation. They're so unique. And Colorado Springs, who's nearer and dearer to Phoenix fans, um, is just so dynamic in their offense. They're really both teams to watch. 
Detroit continued their good run of form out east as well. They hung four goals on Atlanta United. Uh, they're really for real at this point, it seems, which is super fun given the ferocity of their fan base. Um, the upset of the weekend certainly was Tampa Bay dropping a game to Miami, having never in their team's history lost to Miami in a home match. Uh, Tampa's manager, Neil Collins, was overseas getting his coaching badges in Scotland. And uh, the team moved away from their usual formation, even in the later half of their game. Uh, Miami, credit to them for pulling off the upset. They changed their shape as well to address Tampa, and it worked like a charm. Uh, I referenced El Paso's really stunning destruction at the hands of the Fuego from League One. They turned around and demolished Monterey Bay in league play. Uh, they got a 5 nothing win, and their defense was just transformed. It looked so good. And it was the base for their ability to attack through Diego Luna going the other way. Um, in terms of other West Coast action that would be relevant, San Antonio got a 1-0 win over Orange County. And I think really in a theme of the weekend that kind of belied a dominant performance for San Antonio, they got the better of the chances. They were really generating a lot on the counterattack. And OC was a bit feckless in terms of their attack. Obviously, they sold Ronaldo Damas, who carried them to the title. So that's something to watch as they sit outside of the playoffs fairly comfortably at this point. Uh, Sunday saw Louisville hand Loudon a defeat that's really kind of bringing Loudon back down to earth after a hot start. And then Birmingham got a win against Hartford. And Juan Agadello, who fans would know from his MLS experience, got off the schneid and got his debut goal for the Legion. So that's really the headlines across the week for the USL and its teams. Interesting bit of action, but uh, yeah, that's all I've got. And that's a ton. John, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for bringing us the news, and here's to another great week of USL. Anthony Shattuck with Los Bandidos, and you are listening to The Fan Experience. Phoenix Rising family, next up, it's Phoenix Rising versus New Mexico, followed by Phoenix Rising versus New Mexico. On Saturday, April 16th, we host them for a league game, and we host them a few days later on Wednesday, April 20th in the third round of the US Open Cup. So far this season, Phoenix Rising have played five league games. They've won three and have had two losses. New Mexico United, they've played four league games with two wins, two draws. We won our last two games, they drew in their last two games. Both teams won their second round Open Cup games. We beat Nisa squad Valley United FC 1-0. They beat the Las Vegas Legends 5-0. In case you're wondering, Las Vegas Legends are a professional soccer team who play in the NPSL, the National Premier Soccer League, which competes in the fourth tier in the American Soccer Pyramid. Taking a look at the head-to-head -head stats, over the last five times we played them, three of those games ended in draws after regular time, and two ended in wins for Phoenix Rising. Those wins happened the last two times the teams played, and both games were in Phoenix. The result was 5-2 on August the 8th, 2020, and 3-2 on August 28th, 2021. Let's take a look at their notable players. Top of the list is Chris Weehan. He left New Mexico last year to go to Orange County and in a strange series of events, New Mexico went after him and got him to return, but not before they paid the highest price ever paid in a transfer between two USL teams. 
Sweehan has been making plays but hasn't seen the scoreboard yet this season. His teammate, Nico Brett, 30 years old from Kingston, Jamaica, is squarely on the scoreboard. Nico Brett comes to New Mexico by way of Eastern Conference squad Birmingham Legion, where he played with another Jamaican player, former Phoenix Rising star Junior Flemings. Nico Brett was the fifth leading goal scorer in the USL last season for Birmingham Legion, scoring 18 goals. He's well on his way to being a contender this season with three goals in four games. There's only one team that both of these teams have played so far this season, and that's Las Vegas Lights. The Lights went to New Mexico and got beat 2-0, and then they came to Phoenix and they beat us 2-1. What can Rising fans take from that? Not much, but it's the USL, and as we've learned many, many times, anything can happen. It's going to be a blast hosting New Mexico twice in one week. Let's make a deal right now, you and me. If we beat New Mexico in both games, we commit to traveling to Albuquerque to support our boys the next time the two teams meet. I just looked it up. It's on May 21st. Are you in? Of course you are. When we're there, we're going to teach New Mexico our chant. It goes like this. Go Rising!